welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, everyone. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Good evening. Now, we've got a big show. It's not a lot to talk about. We're talking about a new Australian film, Frisky, made only $5,000 later in the program. Quite an achievement. We are talking about Studio Ghibli because the festival is on right now. And oh, it's very exciting. Some of my favorite films are among Miyazaki's treasures. And we are talking, well, Chris, you may as well say it because you're particularly excited for this part of the program. We'll be talking about what we can take away from David Lynch's magnum opus, the final two episodes of Twin Peaks, and why you should all experience this. Yes, we have the biggest David Lynch fan on the show here, so we'll be getting more importantly. That. Can we actually take anything away from Twin Peaks? <laughs> Does anything make sense, or is that even important? It's up for dis- debate, to be sure. Yes, uh, yes. The let's da- debate this. David Lynch loving continues, and uh, <laughs> and but, I'm sorry, Glenn. I, I know you're not a fan, but. <laughs> No, no, you had to put up with this. I'm sorry. Oh, it's, it's a football club. We should talk about David Lynch or Terrence Malick one week. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did go to the same class. So yeah, yay. they went to the same class in film school. So, you know, the universe works in mysterious ways. Well, not that mysterious if you're in the David Lynch production or a Terrence Malick production because nobody knows anything. Can you imagine that class? We're just going to do abstract today, purely abstract. <laughs> yeah. I'm not interested in what this class is offering. I, I definitely enjoy being here, but I'm going to take away what I choose to. Yes. I'm not what a I fan want. of these structured lessons. What is this? Yeah. You know, I like my abstract experience. Thank you. But with, with the first film, we're talking about something that's not at all abstract or a terrible segue there and it is Tom Cruise <laughs> Tom Cruise's Amer- I'm sorry Tom Cruise is an abstract concept yes he is yes. we're getting quite some detail about Tom Cruise we're talking about his new film American Made he's reuniting with his Edge of Tomorrow director Doug Lyman. he plays Barry Seal drug runner for Pablo Escobar the CIA and a number of other shady characters in the 1980s uh, this is a true story in, in some respects it is a prelude to the Iran Contra scandal which is dealt with um, actually sparingly in the film um, look, this film, yeah, look, a lot of money is thrown at this. A lot of Tom Cruise is thrown at this. <laughs> uh, look, it's trying to be in the vein of Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, and War Dogs, which came out last year, actually really preferred. It, it's a, look, we know the shtick. It's a, trying to do an irreverent tone. It's the type of film, I know we're going to get into some detail, but it's the type of one, you know, I'd watch it on Netflix at 10 o'clock on a weeknight. It's not great. It's not bad, but it's somewhat enjoyable in parts. But also... Do I want to spend time, money, and energy on Tom Cruise being glib? I mean, I didn't think so. Is that even important? Is that part of my life? What am I actually getting out of this experience? Is he just glib through this entire film? Pretty yes, much. pretty yeah, much. Like, that's it. There's nothing else. It's not even any other shade of emotion, which is really weird. I feel like Tom Cruise has sealed away his ability to portray genuine emotion. Since I mean, he was really good in Magnolia, right? But when has he seemed sincere since then? Well, he came back, uh, you know, he resurrected his career and came back from The Edge of Tomorrow, pretty much. Which you're making a sequel to. Edge of Tomorrow yeah. is a really good movie. And so yeah, is Oblivion. Like, he's made a few good yeah. films in the past few years. Um, yeah. I liked Night and Day. I think exactly. it was underrated. Well, Mission Impossible is... He's, is... he's done the Mission Impossible in resurrecting his career because right, people right. thought he was, you know, a nostalgic thing. People thought of him as something of the past, the 90s thing, you know, the Vanilla Sky kind of person, and Top Gun, and, what? Oh, you know, Tom Cruise, when you think of the hair flying and beaches and naked men. But <laughs> now, he's more than that. Okay. What? This is the guy, look, to this man's credit, he, hang on, he hung on to the side of a jet to film Mission Impossible 5. He was in his 50s. Who does that? Good for him. All right. I, I enjoy Tom Cruise. I think he has a really magnetic, um, magnetic presence. 
But there's something about his career right now that's a little bit unsettling, which is that Tom Cruise in you know this 80s, 90s Tom Cruise was like a beloved action movie star, as we know. And then, you know, his his career kind of after the backlash from the Oprah interview in 2006 went off a cliff and he's come back from that. But rather than evolving to the new stage, he's almost it's almost like since that moment, it I, I don't know what is going through the man's head, but it sort of. From what it, what we see in the output, it feels like he's trying to prove that he never fell off in the tr- Which movies in, that he's making. Which, in a making. way, is actually uh, what Johnny Depp is trying to prove right, as but, well. But what I see in Tom Cruise is that he produces a lot of his own films where yeah. he plays a young man. Like in the new Mummy movie, he's not... Den- he's, oh, yeah, that was not a highlight. Yeah, yeah, like in the... Russell Crowe says in the new Mummy that you're a young man. It's like yeah. he... He always plays younger characters. He's not admitting... He does look young, but he's not admitting his age or where he is in this career. And he's trying to keep alive the career of a young action movie star who, you know, producing movies like Mission Impossible, where he gets to be, like, cool, amazing, can-do-everything. Speaking of which, the Top Gun sequel in production. Right, exactly. 2019, I think. Exactly. It seems like... I wish that this guy would be more vulnerable. And, you know, rather than trying to prop up this position and prove that he can still do it all the time. And maybe if he were more vulnerable, he'd be turning in a performance that isn't so glib. But maybe that's the difference between uh, a star or a celebrity and an actor. Because Tom Cruise is not an actor. He's a persona. And for him, the only way to survive right now is to keep up the persona. But is it okay to have someone who's large in life? I mean, Tom Cruise, as I think it is, one of the few remaining surviving huge actors of the 80s and 90s who has not gone into television, who maintains this persona and image of a classic movie star. And to do that, it's okay, like Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, all those who preceded them, to be large in life. And he's choosing roles to that extent. And it kind of works in a lot of the good ones. It's a bit circumspect to put Tom Cruise in that category of like Humphrey Bogart Lauren Bacall Tom Cruise <laughs> that's, that's a bit of a I'm sorry Glenn okay, okay, bit, bit of a stretch though, though he comes from the age of movie stars yes, yes I someone agree. like Chris Hemsworth isn't is never going to be as great as he is he's never going to be to the general public you know an icon of money fame Hollywood on the level that Tom Cruise is we just simply don't create movie stars like Jimmy Stewart or Tom Cruise anymore I agree with Glenn yeah, but I mean, look, he kind of, he, look, he runs this persona for the entire movie. I mean, there's a scene where, and it's been heavily used in the trailers, where he crashes a plane in the middle of a suburban neighborhood and it, cocaine just showers over him. And it's that crazy shtick that we've seen um, through all these recent films, barring, I think, Collateral and a couple of others, even Rock of Ages. You know, yeah, where Collateral would be another great, a great uh, performance to see, right? I, I want to see something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I I enjoyed him in that. And he obviously can do the stuff. Look, he's enjoying doing these reaction films. And right. there were a lot of parts of this that were actually really fun. Right, right. But is he just keeping this Tom Cruise persona alive? Is is that the purpose of a movie like this? But to keep he, the mega movie star thing going? Even, even then, like, actually, if we compare with Robert Downey Jr., uh, post-Iron Man, He's just doing the shit. Yeah, shtick. yeah. He, I, so, he said that he'd never do a small movie again. Yeah, Danny Jr. but then you know, is it small movie or a small ego? It, <laughs> it, it's a bit you know different to. Okay, what I, I from what I've heard about the the film, Glenn enjoyed it a lot more than Virat. What did you not like about it beyond Tom Cruise's glib performance? The movie is about nothing in particular. I think that's the problem. It, it's uh, it's trying to be that American movie about patriotism and American values in some sense. You know, the title is American Made, but it's not made by Clint Eastwood. 
<laughs> and in that sense, that's the film's biggest flaw. There's something that Eastwood has been able to tap into about contemporary America, which no other director has been able to do. Scorsese, I'd argue. Uh, quite well. but, yeah, but I don't think it's particularly American in that sense. There's something distinctly about conservative America, which Eastwood can do. Something like Sully, which was, I would say, the best, the daddest dad movie of the year. But nothing happened in Sully. Like <laughs> exactly. And nothing happens in this movie either. Yeah, but, but Sully worked for some reason because it had some sort of emotional undercurrent. But I think the issue here was, I mean, that idea works in where you have a good script, where you have good actors, but who actually have a substantive role. You could be forgiven for watching this movie or seeing the promotional material and not knowing that Dom Hawke Gleason was in it, that Caleb Landry was in it, that Sarah Wright was in it. There were passing figures, yeah. Peter Cruz, who was in every moment of the film. And if you get an actor like Dom Hawke Gleason, you know, actually put him to work. He's been in the string of amazing projects. Caleb Landry, he has pretty good range, but in this, he's just playing the exact same role that he's played in quite a few of these other films. Sarah Wright, who's great, um, well, I mean, Goodfellas, this is very similar to Goodfellas in some respect. Yeah. That worked because of his, uh, Ray Liotta's partner, she played an active role and that you could see the audience's vision of the film reflected in her, and this wasn't evident in here. I agree. Like, the one very distinctive feeling I took away from this was that I need to get back home and watch the new season of Narcos because that is so much better than this. You know, because that's what this movie was trying to be. It's, and even it has Pablo Escobar. So it is definitely going for that vibe, but failed miserably because it is just... Glib and blank. Ooh. Ooh. So, yeah, American Made on that note is in cinemas now. Uh, we will be back very shortly talking about Studio Ghibli. Stay tuned. It's all the same. Only the names will change. Every day, it seems we're wasting away of another place. Where the faces are so cold I drive all night Just to get back home I'm a cowboy On a steel horse I ride I want it Dead or alive and that was, of all people, Tom Cruise singing Bon Jovi's Dead or Alive from Rock, Rock of Ages, where he played Stacey Jacks. Didn't enjoy the film so much, but the Broadway and West End productions, in fact, any production of it is absolutely fantastic, so please do seek it out. But, I, yeah, I, think the film, the, I think the movie is good trash. There's a lot wrong with it, but, you know, it's fun. Uh, Tom, Tom Cruise was... I think he was, was the best Tom part Cruise of it. Tom Cruise was definitely the, definitely the best part of it. The, I mean, but there's something to be said about good trash. I think I enjoy good trash. I do too, but... On the subject of things that that are I'll, good and not trash at all. Yes, I'll, 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 I'll segues are very counterintuitive in this episode. Yeah. No, well, this was perfectly planned. Come on, guys. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as something that is not trash and is good is Studio Ghibli, and currently the Studio Ghibli Festival is on at cinemas around Australia. We're it's about, running from August twenty fourth to September twentieth. So. Yeah, so you've got uh, you know a couple of weeks to check out. What else is playing? It's been a bit all over the place, like um, the scheduling of the movies. You really have to check with your local cinema guides to yes. find out what's on when, because I've often been blindsided by, oh, this is on yeah. now. I guess I've got to rearrange my schedule. But also, but the, I'm the really thankful to see these on the big the screen. The fantastic thing is, like, each and every Studio Ghibli movie is actually playing in cinemas. Every single which, one. Which means, like, and I Including feel, their short films. I feel not guilty at all in admitting this, that even though I'm a huge Studio Ghibli fan, 
I have missed out a lot of movies, and I didn't Look, even realize it until I actually looked at the entire list. I'm like, whoa, there's so much I haven't yeah, seen. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot I haven't seen. Um, and I consider myself a huge Ghibli nut as well, because Spirited Away is one of the movies that really ignited my passion for movies at an earlier, you know, when I was a kid. So... It's strange. Yeah, I mean, that. I mean, I think that there is yeah. that moment with every so much for them, movie but... fan goes through, where you start from Spirit Away, and then you migrate yep. to you know more mature taste, and you go to Tortora, and then the wind rises. <laughs> Spirit and... Away is still is still a fantastic. <laughs> I film. agree, it is wonderful. If you I haven't agree. seen that, that's the easiest film yes. that they have on to, to see to watch because it keeps it plays a lot. Yeah, a and lot of sessions of Spirited Away. Definitely, you can catch that. It's a landmark film. Yeah, please, really worth seeing. Please do. This was the first Judy Ghibli film I ever saw. My sister and I used to watch these films in SBS like on a weeknight at 8.30 whenever they were on and we just fell in love with them. They were absolutely fantastic and they still are. You're just admitting that you are like such such a snob, Glenn. <laughs> we used to watch Studio Glibly on SBS with my sister. That's where they were on. That's we, where you got them. Okay, I, uh, I've seen caught only a few films from the festival. I'm going to try and catch a few more as it goes on, but some I'd like to speak up for. I caught Poco Rosso, which is one of the only... Miyazaki movies I hadn't seen um, and even though it's not one of my favorites it, it shows what's so unique about Miyazaki his ability to conjure up a world that feels really comfortingly nostalgic and familiar and yet is so otherworldly and fantastical in some ways this incredible attention to detail and his warmth and spirit and generosity towards his characters. And I think we, even though he's a very different director, Aizawa Takahata, whose films are also showing at the festival, um, who isn't as famous as Hayao Miyazaki, has a very different approach. But once again, the thing that unites them and creates that Ghibli feeling is this warmth and generosity towards the characters. I'd really recommend people um, to seek out another film that's playing at the festival if they get the chance to see it, which is The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which is the oh, final film. Fantastic. Yeah, the final film by Aizawa Takahata, which is an incredibly moving and mature work, um, as is Hayao Miyazaki's final film, The Wind Rises. Both deeply humane and personal works from master directors. And I know we'll get to Twin Peaks later on, Chris, but I just realized, and it hit me right now, it's a parallel between world building. Yes, you know, the kind exactly of world right. building that Lynch happens in that kind of internal worlds yes. that collide with each other. People, and that's what Studio Ghibli is famous for. Both um, in Tale of Princess Kaguya and The Wind Rises both bring forward this idea that's really important to David Lynch and Twin Peaks as well, which is the power of dreams yes. and what, they, the, what the power dreams can bring to our world, the clashing of the internal and the external. Um, through the fantastical elements, they get to saying something true about the way that we live our lives. And even though I think Glenn kind of hates David Lynch, he likes Studio Ghibli. So there is I, some I, meaning point. I do, but it's one okay. I think it works really well. I love the idea of dreams, dreams game, dream escapism. And yeah. um, one one of my favorites, I played at the Sydney Film Festival last year, was The Red Turtle. Which, that was fantastic. Which was a co-production with a Dutch company, but it, it had no almost no dialogue throughout, but it was emotive. It was moving. Mm. And there were dream sequences as such. There was pathology, as in many of his films, deeply, deeply woven in there. Um, it was a short one, and it's a uh, pretty you know, consumable. I think it's and someone it, who's definitely worth catching. Like like all Ghibli films, it said a lot with images. Words yeah. weren't so necessary. Red Turtle has no words at all. Exactly. But, and while other Ghibli films may have a lot of words, they really convey their their meaning and the, um, through the power of images and visual poetry. And music. And music. The, the, the scene where the the, re, the reeds are rustling and it's just about as powerful oh, and when the God. water comes slamming on the beach, it's so impactful. It's so frightening. That's right. And I, I feel actually just envious in that sense where how you can 
bring out a world which is completely in your head, yeah. so realistically. And I just want to, you know... It's what art is, it, film art is about. Um, uh, yes, on the subject of their music, I'd like to point out that Joe Hisaishi, Miyazaki's longtime composer com- collaborator, has created some of the most memorable themes in the history of film music, and it's wonderful to hear that music on the big screen. There's one more film I saw quite at the festival that I'd like to talk about because it's a more underseen Studio Ghibli film, and it does remind me of what we were saying about the power of dreams. It's called Whisper of the Heart. If you get a chance to see it, please do. It's a movie written and with art direction by Hayao Miyazaki, but directed by another director who tragically died not very long after the film came out in a car accident. But Whisper of the Heart is about a young girl and her life, essentially. It, it's about um, her, her uncertainty about her future, her having a crush on a boy she meets at school, just simple things that are true to life. But it shows how powerfully these things affect her and how they come to influence her dreams. And it shows how she comes to share those dreams with other people in order to reach kind of spiritual and emotional wholeness in the forms of channeling her emotions into writing a book. It's a, a beautiful metaphor for um, art and how strong emotions are to you when you're at that age. They they find a way through all sorts of stories they tell, World War II biopics, simple stories of everyday life, complete fantasy tales like Princess Mononoke or Nosuka of the Valley of the Wind, yeah. to say something true about humanity and what's good about us. And I think that's a legacy Studio Ghibli have built that will never be forgotten. There are not enough movies that talk about the good of humanity, and I think we definitely need more of that. There's a lot of cynicism, there's a lot of uh, black comedy, but not yeah. enough. And they do so in a way that's sincerity. sincere, that, yeah, isn't, sincerity. that isn't just artificial manipulation to make us feel good about ourselves. And it's not just their emotional legacy. I mean, the, the animation itself has been yes. so adapted, yes. and homage is paid I mean, to anime you... and general cinema yeah, generally. Yeah, yeah. They, they are masters of the form of animation. Once you see a Studio Ghibli film, and then you go back to you know that Disney, Pixar style of animation, or just CGI, you just feel so empty. It reminds us of how many possibilities there are outside yeah. of what we usually are exposed to. And how many alternatives there detailing. are. Detailing, you know, that's yeah. something. You know, even the rustling of the leaves, yes, you can right. hear it and you can see it. It's that sort of very this, sensory experience. It's very Japanese in yeah. the um, in how attuned it is to the, the subtle elements of the natural world. And the one, oh, it was, it's just beautifully done. And, and Totoro, you watch it and you can see how it's influenced so many like films. Yes, um, yes. Uh, the one based on the Borrowers, which is one of my favorites. Uh, the, uh, Arietti, Arietti, The Secret World of Arietti, I think it's called in, yes. in English. And has the yeah. stoic figure as the dad and he just humph and just move and yeah, make these yeah, little yeah. grimaces and yeah, say they, more about his character than anything that's else. That's right. It's the, in the animation the detail that they bring to small movements, as you say, like the harumph of this <laughs> of this man, or, or the old lady in Spirited yeah. Away, yes. the wrinkles yes. in her face oh, and the way she hobbles God. around, you know, or, or the way that the, the Totoro moves in Totoro, oh, yeah. with oh. big, heavy footsteps. Oh, it's, it's just there's joy in yeah. witnessing their animation art. But also, it's the closest you get to kind of fiction, novelistic style of storytelling. Yeah, you know, because that's when you. Really, I mean, a writer would emphasize these movements to show character development, Hmm. but often the visual medium robs that. They're using the film medium to the fullest. Check them out on the big screen if you can. Oh, definitely. Please do. Yes, please do. The festival's on for two more weeks. We'll be back momentarily talking about Twin Peaks. Stay tuned. Twilight is gone. And no songbirds are singing. 
When the twilight is gone You come into my heart And here in my heart you will stay While I pray My prayer. And that was My Prayer by the Platters, a very significant song in the new season after a 25-year hiatus of Twin Peaks, which just wrapped up and has David Lynch fans all around the world, including one right here in the studio. Just, ah, oh, yeah, very, you, you, very Brains excited. have been fried by it, it I'd if, say. If you could see Chris right now, there is true submission to divinity. Yes. Get off the table, Chris. No, honestly... <laughs> That's how I feel. I, even though we've spoken before about is it TV, is it film, this is, um, I think, first of all, it doesn't matter because TV and film are ultimately the same art of images and cinema and motion and sound. But this definitely owes more to film in the way that it is a, a work where the meaning is, comes most, not so much through dialogue, but through the power of images. Yeah. So the new Twin Peaks, for me was it's hard, I thought I would just be able to say so much about this without thinking about it but it which I, I I guess is true but it's hard to know where to start because I was affected by this so profoundly I thought I'm doing the job of film criticism here on Film Fight Club and there's no way that I could not speak about something like this when it moved me as profoundly as it has I know that um, it, this is a very love it or hate it experience that David Lynch has created with the new, um, the last two episodes of his Twin Peaks show. But I think for me, it's what cinema is all about. The show preceding it has had its ups and downs. Yeah, it's um, definitely. It's had its flaws. It's had its its great moments and its its flaws. But what we he's created in this finale is sublime. It brings forth, um, first of all, incredibly innovative cinematic technique to express David Lynch's ideas, but it manages to give us so much. It gives you moments of incredible, indescribable horror, as well as moments of jubilation and joy. It simultaneously addresses really deep themes, but also gives us something as silly as an intentionally bad scene that we get yes. ironic joy out of in the way that you might watch something like The Room. And, He's uh, a generous enough to give us so much. Actually, on, on, on that, actually, I would definitely just pay... Respects to Carl McLaughlin. I mean, yes. what he's Carl McLaughlin. Just what he's been able to do in those, especially yes. in those intentionally That's exactly bad right. things. That's exactly right. This new uh, Twin Peaks um, shows us in its premise of identity shifting, which oh, has become God, David Lynch's yeah. obsession since the first Twin Peaks aired and has been part of every work he's made yeah. since. Um, he has allowed Carl McLaughlin to show off this incredible range. Um, in this show, we see him showing, um, you know, he splits um, Agent Cooper, the character that was so important to the original Twin Peaks, through a prism so that we can see every different shade of Agent Cooper yes. imaginable. Oh, 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 literally, um, in literal sense, actually, you see Carl McLaughlin that, in... Yeah, that's right. Very every, every side of, yeah. of himself that he could show. So, um, just a few thoughts before we move on <laughs> beyond this. This new Twin Peaks, what is it about? What does it give us? For me, um, I think the original Twin Peaks, through all its genre trappings, David Lynch felt was, at its core, 
a story about abuse. And so in using the the opportunity to revisit this, instead of just creating a nostalgic sequel to give people the fan service of seeing the characters that they love again 25 minute years later, he's taken this idea really seriously and he's used it as an opportunity to take the themes of the original show further. So what we have now is a very strange, abstract, winding pathway um, of, a, of a show that explores the idea of how does abuse affect us over time? Where do we move forward when there's a trauma in our past? Um, what scars are too much to bear? Or, or, Can we move on? Yeah, exactly. Do we, we move on? Yes. It, and the, this finale gives people the quest, gives us challenges the audience. How do we react to the traumas of our life? Actually, Can we move yeah. on? What is a way to live in, in a healthy way? Yeah, that's a really interesting point Chris has made, and I just want to cap that off. A lot of TV and a lot of film, what I think Chris and I agree on, mm which very few things we agree on, but this is one of the things we do agree this on. This is Fight Club. Yeah. <laughs> well, the few things we agree on is that it's very passive. Yes. And you know, what Twin Peaks is not, it's not passive. That's right. It's very active. In fact, it asks you to actually engage. And That's exactly right. Basically, fill in the gaps. And you know, you form your own narrative. Narrative is not given That's to exactly you. That's exactly right. It, it asks us to do something, but if we go with it, it gives us something. Exactly. Now, just to wrap up, I'd like to say that as a confession, I've been kind of getting disillusioned with films lately because I watch so many films that seem just to not be saying anything or giving us anything that it's almost not worth the time that I invest in films, I started to feel. I started to get a little bit disillusioned. Seeing something this good reminds me of why I, I'm a, I love film so dearly, because this film gave me something that I could relate to my own life. This film gives me something that was so, so, so much more worth the time that, it gave, that I gave to it. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful to David Lynch. I... Um, could not recommend anything to our listeners more than this new series of Twin Peaks. That, that's remarkable. I mean, I, you know, I've never heard Chris say something so just emotive and so just was, invested was, in something. He was so, tearing up. Yeah. If you could listen, it, it moved I'm, me to my yes. core. Yes, yeah, so I am. Look, I'm committing now. I watched it, like the first two episodes quite a few years ago, <laughs> but I'm telling you right now, I'm going to go because <laughs> what you said. I'm going to go and watch all three seasons, even if you hate it, and the yeah. film, and the film. Even if you hate it, I'm sure you'll see it as being something truly unique. And, and knowing how much Glenn actually hates David Lynch, that's a big <laughs> commitment. I, I respect you, and I will give you a big hug after the show, Glenn. So, so we will report back one week. Uh, once so we've had the, all, the, we, we all review the three seasons of Twin Peaks, which I am looking forward to. But in the time we have less, we are talking about Frisky, which is an Australian film by writer, director, and producer, and star Claudia Pickering. She plays Chloe. It's quite an amazing thing that she's produced this and achieved this on a $5,000 budget. It's about a character called Chloe who... Goes over to the US to start a PR agency with her best mate, played by Monica Ammerman. It's about relationships, roommates. Uh, we mentioned The Room earlier, which is also set in San Francisco. This is a much better film than The Room. It is a love letter to San Francisco. It is a love letter to life. It is Maybe it's a compliment if you say it's comparative to The Room, because a lot of people do like The Room as well. So. This, is, this is far better than The Room. Look, I mean, this is quite a fun film. Um, it's a lot of good humor. It's a lot of dark yes. humor, which I was very impressed at. Um, I'm sure the uh, director of this was a fan of Seinfeld, because there's a lot of uh, a lot of it revolves around a dog and a line you would not particularly expect, but yeah, um, quite not what I was expect. I quite enjoyed it, not what I was expecting at all. Oh, I, I loved it. Look, one of the my favorite sort of 
through lines of the film and watch what I don't get to see. And this is something I know uh, people roll their eyes as soon as I say. I'm like, you know, real female friendships. Uh, we don't get to see genuine female friendships on screen, which don't involve, you know, men or, you know, passive aggressiveness. We, you know, the main leads are two just female best friends. And they run with that for the entire film. And pulling no punches, which was so refreshing to see. And it was so much fun. They have a really interesting dynamic. I mean, they've clearly invested a lot of time, thought, effort into this film. And just the surrounding characters, they're a pretty eclectic group. The main yes. guy, Sam, the one of the roommates, I, I feel I wanted to narrate my life. He was just yes. so interesting. He was so savage. And, and also, I, I do know some of those people in my life as well who just tell you straight out like how terrible a person you are. But I need them because sometimes you need people to tell you that you're just being a bad person. And you can't face up to that. So you need people in your life to tell you that, hey, you know, you know what? Just deal with it. Move on. You know, just suck her up and be frisky. Yeah, be, fr- be frisky, yes. Go live. Go, go live. Go live. Yeah. Go live. Go live. Yeah, it's, it's one of those films that encourages you, like like the filmmaker did, just get out there, do something, in this case, make a movie or start a PR agency or do whatever. But it's also, affirming. It's but also affirming the low budget is not actually a precursor or a bar to the actual standard of film. And no, filmmaking. not at all. You know, the way it's shot, it's fantastic. The art direction and, you know, what was achieved by that very intimate crew was spectacular. The sound design was fantastic. The location and how the scenes are set even though it's, you know, in a share house. But it's a love letter to San Francisco. So, you know, that if you love those kind of films where, you know, it's basically based in the city and captioned city vibe, it's a beautiful film. Yeah, please do check it out. It's available on iTunes. Uh, it's frisky. And yeah, uh, please do. It's Australian it's cinema. And such we, we a do good great time work. for Aussie cinema right now. There's Ali's Wedding. There's That's Not Me. Which is opening out. in cinemas tomorrow. Please yeah. do check it out. It's got some great coverage all over the place. And it's absolutely worth seeing. It's in Pal Cinemas on September 7th. There's Frisky. There's The Killing Ground. There's so much good stuff out there. Aussie stuff. Go Aussie. There is. And please also <laughs> check out the City Latin American Film Festival. It opens tomorrow night at Denzel Opera Keys, running from September 7th to 11th. They'll be there. And they're playing some awesome films. We've got a up the Sonic Assassin is up next. Um, enjoy movies. Good night. Good night all. Good night.